Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. Today, I'd like to introduce Vince Scully. Now, Vince was born in Dublin in Ireland, of course, and migrated to Australia in 1990. G'day, Vince. How are you going? G'day, Phil. Now, he's worked for over 25 years in financial services, consulting in wealth management and financial advice. He was a senior member of Macquarie Bank's infrastructure team. He also founded the Caliva Group, a fund manager, product issuer, advisor and lender, which he sold to Mark Burris before it became Yellow Brick Road. Before we started, I just wanted to ask about, you used to actually go and see U2 before Bono could sing. I did. I, um, growing up in Dublin, as you mentioned, I used to spend my misspend my Saturday afternoons at a place called the Dandelion Markets, which was in this disused warehouse near the main shopping street in Dublin. And they have these bands who'd play for 25 pence, I think, was the, the cover charge. And one afternoon, it was this band called U2, and nobody was having a bar of them. They were not, and Bono was not not able to sing. And then I saw them about six months later at a place called the Stardust Ballroom, where they played support to a band called the Greedy Bastards, mm-hmm. which was a mixture of Thin Lizzy, Sex Pistols, and Ultravox. So it was Phil Cook and Steve Jones from the uh, Sex Pistols, Phil Lynott and Brian Downey from Thin Lizzy, and Midjour from Ultravox. And they had a Christmas hit that year, which I think was called Greedy Christmas from memory. And you uh, <laughs> 2 were the support band, and that's where The Edge got his nickname. It was because he was so shy, he used to stay at the side of the stage. <laughs> Fantastic prehistory. Sorry, we're talking ancient history, really. <laughs> okay, but let's, um, let's talk about your bugbears. We had a chat beforehand to decide what we were going to talk mm. about. So there's um, your bugbears. Now, um, Vince, you've identified that the listener is the problem, and they've got all sorts of problems. <laughs> With all this technology, with podcasts and YouTube and blogs, people are now actually talking about money. We used to never talk about money. And now it's becoming sort of commonplace and people share their views in forums on the internet. And there are hundreds of thousands of people sharing money tips day in, day out on, on Facebook. And of course, we've got podcasts like Shares for Beginners. And one of the most popular movements in that uh, sharing of information is this thing called the fire movement we've all heard about the fire movement Uh, well it's it is it's a raging fire and now fire stands for financial independence retire early the first bit of that's pretty hard to argue with that um you know reaching financial independence is a goal that almost everybody should share the retire early bit is the bit that i think causes a bit more controversy looking at the whole fire movement there's a couple of variations on it but one of the big things that people talk about is extreme frugality to try and get to extreme early retirement there's a whole bunch of myths and legends that get shared or memes that get shared around that which i think can often lead to poorer financial outcomes drinking your morning latte is what's keeping you out of the housing market Mm. well nothing could be further from the truth yeah yeah we certainly do spend more eating out than our predecessors Mm -hmm. our previous generations but we actually spend less eating at home. So the total proportion of income we spend on food 
actually hasn't changed in 40 years. Mm, mm. So your morning coffee is not what's stopping you buying a house. And it's not those smashed avocados, are Oh, indeed. <laughs> okay, well, let's get started on the, uh, the first of the bugbears, which is um, investors who start with the instrument and not the outcome. And we should explain what an instrument yeah, is in this sure. context as well. Yeah, this is the, um, the thing you quite often see in these forums, people going, well, I've got $10,000 to invest. Should I buy Vanguard Australian shares or Vanguard Global shares? Or should I buy BHP? Or words that affect, you know, 10,000 variations on that question every day. But it's sort of the wrong question. And that is, well, what are you trying to achieve is the real question. So if you don't know what it is that you're trying to achieve with this investment, you can't make a decision as to whether Vanguard Australian shares or Vanguard Global shares or BlackRock or whatever else you might choose to buy is going to meet your objectives. We certainly know that the move to index funds spearheaded by Jack Bogle at Vanguard has put downward pressure on investment costs. There's never been a cheaper time to invest than now. But this is not always a price game. You know, the choice between buying the BlackRock Australian share fund and the Vanguard Australian share fund, the difference I think at the moment is about four basis points. That's 0.04% of your investment. Which is not going to make a Which I think is about $400 on a million. Yeah. <laughs> um, the difference in... Be- one tracks the ASX 200 shares and the other one tracks the ASX 300 shares, the difference in performance ICU indexes will be more than the difference in price. So what should, if they're thinking about um, instruments rather than outcomes, how should someone start thinking about their outcomes and what they want to do with their money? Yeah, so the thing that I would always get a potential investor to do is look at, well, what are you trying to achieve? Are you saving for a deposit on a home that you're going to buy in three or four years? Are you saving for retirement? Are you saving for financial independence where you want to retire at 30 and live off the proceeds? Or are you saving for your kid's high school education? Now, all of those with their timeframes and how rigid that goal is will have a huge impact on what you should be choosing to invest. So if your kid is in year four now and you want to pay for year seven education, well, you probably shouldn't be in the stock market because they can't choose to start year seven a year later just because the market's down if on the other hand you're saving for your home deposit well if the market doesn't go your way you can always delay your purchase for another year or two if you're saving for retirement post age 60 well actually the tax benefits of being in super might very well outweigh some of these cost considerations so first of all start with the why before you get anywhere near the how or the what the next step is obviously looking at your risk profile and your time frame so your risk profile is really comes down to two things how tolerant you are of risk which means what are you going to do when you wake up in the morning and the share price has fallen 20 percent are you going to be able to boldly go and buy some more <laughs> or are you going to go oh my god i've got to sell which, um, which is the natural reaction it is. you just hear so many stories about people selling out when the, the market's going down i can't take this anymore i can't see all this red on my screen anymore i'm out i'm out of here and the interesting thing is that most of the worst days on the market have been in very close proximity to the best days on the market. So a bit of patience can often help. And using tools that take the emotion out of it, like stop losses. So that's the, the next step is... Identifying the risk. You identify the risk that you're mentally capable of taking. And closely related to that is the financial risk that you're capable of accepting. So you might have a very high risk tolerance, but if you're six months away from retiring, 
your capacity to absorb that risk is not that great. But if you're 25 and you're saving for retirement, then you have a huge capacity to absorb loss, but you may or may not have the tolerance for it. So understanding both of those is critical to getting that answer right. And in the long term as well, you, you see, you look at the chart, of, the chart of the ASX 200 or any index, and what seem to be major uh, corrections look like tiny blips when you look at it over a longer period of time. Yeah, but the market can take a long time to recover that. So you ask a Japanese investor in 1989 whether they take the same view as that, mm-hmm. where you know, the Nikkei still hasn't got back to where it was in 1989. Yep. The FTSE only recently got back to where it was in 1999. So markets can stay disrupted for a very long period of time, but managing your emotional reaction to that is what matters. And then the third point is well, where's this money coming from and what's the tax position that it's in? So if you're a you know, top-rate taxpayer, putting the money into super or investment bonds might actually be a better answer, even though they cost potentially a little bit more. But obviously, if you're trying to reach financial independence at age 30, super's not the answer for you. So get those three questions right, and now you can decide what asset am I going to put into this to try and deliver the outcome I want. And in many cases, the answer will be an indexed option. But that's not a passive decision. People talk about it being passive investing. It's only passive in the sense that there's no human being interfering with the choice every day. It's follow the algorithm. But choosing which index will make a huge difference to the outcome. You know, as Australian investors, we have a huge propensity to invest in Australia because well, we've been beaten up to think the franking credits are good things and, the, and foreign shares don't have these, therefore foreign shares are bad, therefore you should invest in Australian shares. You know, what are you doing for a living? If you're in real estate, your living is dependent on the continued success of the real estate market, as is the continued future of our banks, which make up 40% of our Australian share index. So if you're in real estate, maybe putting your life savings into an Australian share fund is not actually the right answer if you're trying to achieve financial independence by age 30. Or even diversification as well. Or, yeah. Mm, that's right. It's not going to provide you with diversification. Particularly if you've already drunk the Kool-Aid at work and bought a few properties. <laughs> you're now hugely exposed to the Australian housing market. Mm-hmm. And you've got next to no diversification. And um, also, I think uh, people look at the Australian market because they're very comfortable with it. They know all the names. But it doesn't make sense when you think of the other names like Facebook and Google and Microsoft. That's right. And every other big name that you can think of, they're all on the US share market. Exactly. Yeah, the, the US makes up something like 40% of the total global share market. And most of those American companies make a big chunk of their revenue overseas. So we in Australia, I think, make up about 2%. Mm-hmm. So yeah, should you really be putting 100% of your money into 2% of the market? Well, there are some reasons why we should prefer Australian shares. So this is not an, a blanket recommendation to go and buy overseas. Yeah, obviously you, get, you have no currency risk if you're investing in Australian shares. Um, there's some tax benefits in Australian shares. There's the familiarity context where, you know, we all know who BHP is. We know who Westpac is. We know who National Australia Bank is. We're probably less familiar with who Wells Fargo is. But that familiarity can lead us into a false sense of security. Okay, let's move into the funds area. Mm. You also like talking about the misunderstanding 
between the difference between active and passive funds. And um, you use the uh, the analogy of bottles versus cans. Tell yeah, us about yeah, this. This, this. This may sound a bit absurd, but the question that people often ask in these forums is, should I buy passive, meaning indexed, or should I buy active? And most people in the fire movement will say, of course you need passive funds. They're cheaper. But the question is to whether I go active or passive. I liken it to walking into a bottle shop and asking the guy behind the counter, should I buy bottles or cans, before working out what you want to drink or the context you want to drink it in. By way of exploration, if I can take a couple of examples. If you want to sit down with a nice Wagyu and a Shiraz, the answer is almost certainly you should be buying a bottle. Good Shiraz doesn't come in bags. (laughs) But if you're going hiking and you want something to quench your thirst, you probably want to be drinking beer and cans are easier to cool and they can be crushed so you can carry them out and they're lighter. So cans are probably certainly the answer for you if you're going hiking and you want to drink beer. If you want to drink beer at home and you're going to be drinking it not out of a glass, well, you probably want it in a bottle. So, you know, what do you want to drink? So let's come back to, well, with the what do you want to drink argument. They say, well, if I'm investing in large companies which are very well researched, the odds of me being able to do better than the average fund manager are very slim because I'm not spending every day talking to the management of Microsoft or Facebook. So I probably don't have an edge. Most fund managers in those spaces don't add a lot of value. So I'm going to buy straight S&P 500 or ASX 200 unless I'm going to go for a small manager which takes a very concentrated approach. I'm unlikely to be able to do better than the index. But if I'm going to invest in emerging markets, for example, rather than taking a blanket allocation across how the MSCI decides to allocate money, I might take a view that you know, Southeast Asia is better than South America. And those are sort of macro views I think people can, can take. And so investing in emerging markets, you should very well look for an active manager. Or if you're looking for a specific market sector, like you want to invest in tech or in healthcare, there's probably a very good likelihood that a manager can outperform. So again, come back to the why before the what. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. An index like the S&P 500 has billions of dollars of daily turnover. So getting set to buy the companies in the S&P 500 is a cheap, liquid, easy-to-access market. Within the sectors, most of the major index providers also provide indexes or indices, I suppose. S&P will calculate an index for industrials. They will calculate an index for financials. But investing in it's not that easy. It's useful as a benchmark, but to actually, certainly in Australia, it's harder to do it. There's more instruments offshore that will let you do it. So if you wanted to invest in US financials, you can find one relatively easily. 
But the index does give you a benchmark, and there is plenty of evidence that would suggest that you know, if you want to invest in healthcare or tech stocks, there are managers that can significantly outperform those indexes. And similarly, you know, we started to talk a bit about bonds, and this comes back to my point about although the fund itself may be passive, your decision to invest in it is not a passive decision. So if you're going to invest in the ASX 200, you're by definition accepting I'm putting 40% of my money in financials. If you want to invest in Australian bonds, the index has a, I think the duration is about seven years, which means that you are taking a seven-year view on interest rates by investing in the index of Australian government bonds. Is that actually what you want to do? It may very well be, but just because you want to invest in Australian bonds doesn't mean you should therefore choose a seven-year investment as being the answer to your objectives. It may very well be the right answer, but you've got to know what it is that you're buying. So why would you be buying bonds? Let's talk about bonds for a little while, because even though we're talking about shares here, you can buy bonds as a share via an ETF. That's right. That's the case, isn't it? There are a handful of Australian fixed or so-called fixed interest which is this is a matter of asset allocation yeah so again that comes back to the original point about what are you trying to achieve which will give you an asset allocation which will then allow you to choose your instrument from there and bonds are seen as a safe bonds are usually used in that mix to provide a dampening effect so it's like the suspension on your investment car it's the thing that smooths out the ride when you go over bumps and historically that's what they've been used in portfolios to do. The downside of that is historically they've delivered lower returns. And certainly in the interest rate environment we're in today, that's even more so. This has been a bit obscured over the last years because what we've seen is a 40-year decline in interest rates. So if you go back to the the immediate post-1970s inflation period, when we had interest rates in the mid-teens, they've gone largely one direction for the last 40 years and are negative to zero in most of the civilised world, or the developed world anyway. And that would suggest that going forward, there's only one way they can go, and that's back up. Interest rates and bond prices move against each other. The higher the interest rate, the lower your bond is worth. So whether you get the same smoothing effect is debatable. But that's what they've usually been used for. So you wouldn't necessarily advise someone to um, buy a bond ETF for that smoothing? Well, it, in- it, it, again, it comes back to who they are. If you're a retiree and you're depending on your portfolio to last you for the next 30 years or however it is long you live, a bit of bonds is probably good. If you're a 25-year-old investing for or to build an investment base to live off in the future, maybe not so. And certainly if you've got a home loan, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be borrowing money at 3% from the bank and lending to the government at 1.5. But it does take a more discipline view. You need to look at your total asset base rather than focusing on the little bit that you've got invested in shares. So it takes a bit of discipline. But purely mathematically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the old story says that you know, if you're looking for growth, you should invest as much as you possibly can in shares and enough in bonds to let yourself sleep at night. <laughs> and uh, getting that uh, ratio correct. Yeah. You, you tend not to use bonds or bond ETFs. You prefer real estate and infrastructure. Yeah. In term- is yeah. this in terms of income or in terms of that dampening Well, effect? it's about the dampening effect. So for our, for, and we'll, we'll probably come and talk to this later, but for the LifeSherpa member who's typically late 20s to early 40s, 
Many of them have big home loans. They're generally earning a good income, and they're trying to put some money aside to either buy a home or buy an investment property or provide for early retirement or their kids' futures. And because they've got a, a home loan, you go, well, why would I be borrowing money and lending to the government? So how do I get the same sort of damping effect without sacrificing my return? And one way to do that is to look at specific types of shares in specific sectors. And the two that we often use are real estate, which is tends to be relatively stable, particularly what we would call core infrastructure, like office buildings, industrial estates, retail to a lesser extent, where you've got a long-term tenant paying an inflation-linked rent and the property will tend to grow with economic growth generally. So uh, not all property investments are as the same as, as each other. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. So you really need to look at what you Yeah. So if I'm investing in the Investor Office Trust, for example, which invests in generally mature office buildings, leased to quality tenants... Government. Governments. And, yeah. ASX-listed big companies... That's a relatively stable cash flow, and you're not really exposed to the value of the property till those leases expire in maybe 10 years. On the other hand, investing in Stockland, which makes most of its money by building house and land packages on the fringes of our cities, that's a very cyclical business, and so that's closer to a real business than a relatively passive property investment. But... Pick the right asset and you can do that. Obviously not advocating investing in WeWork um, (laughs) as a property investment. Um, That's more akin to sort of putting it on black at the casino. But if you can choose a relatively stable investment, you can get something that is capable of beating inflation in the long term and yet has relatively stable cash flows. What about retail? What are your feelings on well, retail? Well, retail... Because that's another... Yeah, and that's a bigger problem in Australia where up to recently the biggest component of our real estate index was Westfield, mm-hmm. which gets a lot of its income from turnover-related rents. So your favourite shop in your local Westfield pays a base rent plus a percentage of its sales. So Westfield's income is heavily dependent on how much gets spent in the shops. And that's very much driven by market cycles. Mm -hmm. And historically, Australian landlords, retail landlords, have been able to extract a bigger percentage of retail turnovers than landlords anywhere else in the world. And it's debatable whether that's sustainable in a move to online retail. You know, walk down any mall. uh, I was in Moringa Mall last Sunday, and it was like a ghost town. That wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. Another alternative in the property universe is the, um, is it industrial? Like yeah, warehouses? Yeah, exactly, industrial. Because on the opposite side, I mean, I'm not sure if this is true, but what I've been told is that um, with the uh, the rise of online shopping, is that warehousing now. Exactly, yeah. So that whole fulfilment exercise, so rather than manufacturers shipping 80% of their output to David Jones and Meyer, they're now shipping it to tens of thousands of people via Amazon or online shops. And that's created this huge demand for logistics space, mm-hmm. much of which is purpose-built. They talk about cross-docking, where you can drive a truck up to one bay and ship the stuff out from other bays without putting it in racking. 
So these sort of technologies have made huge differences. And people like uh, Goodman Properties have been able to capitalise on that. That's a, another alternative which would potentially give you a more stable cash flow than retail. But the point of all of that is that uh, investment in real estate, the right real estate, can give you much of the smoothing effects without sacrificing too much yield. Infrastructure is another interesting opportunity to create this sort of smoothing effect that we would traditionally expect to get from from bonds. What is infrastructure? Infrastructure is all those things we need to live in a modern society. Roads, railways, power stations, airports, cell phone towers. If you remember playing Monopoly, it's the ones in the middle of each each side of the board, you know, roads, railways, power stations. Mm -hmm. And they have a similar cash flow profile to real estate. They generally have close to monopolies in their sector. Their revenues generally track inflation and economic growth, and their prices are often regulated. So if you think about the toll road you drive to work on every morning, Transurban, their revenue is driven by number of cars driving on the road plus the amount they're allowed to put the toll up by the government every year. And they also fix costs. So the cost of operating a toll road is mostly the cost of building and financing it. The cost of operating the toll booths has disappeared with electronic tolling. And there's, yeah, sure, there's a bit of maintenance and they have to expand it every now and again. But it produces a relatively stable cash flow, which looks and behaves a lot like a, a bond. Now, don't confuse that with some more peripheral infrastructure domes, like people who build these toll roads. So before we know how much many cars are going to drive on this, you're sort of taking a risk on, well, can they build it on time and on budget? And when it opens, will these cars actually use it? So, you know, some spectacular failures on some of the Brisbane toll roads, uh, the Cross City Tunnel in Sydney. So you've got to pick your investment. But if you can pick an operating toll road or a an operating airport mm-hmm. or some railways, you can build this sort of investment which gives you relatively stable inflation-linked exposure to economic growth that will behave a lot like a bond. Okay, let's talk about Life Sherpa. Let's hear all about it. It's a lovely website. <laughs> it's Thanks very so. pretty. <laughs> um, Life Sherpa was designed to fulfil the needs of younger people who were largely being ignored by the traditional financial advice business. So traditional advice business, the way the economics work, you need people who have money to invest. And the truth is there are only 2 million households in Australia who have $100,000 or more of non-super assets to invest. And there's 19,000 financial planners. That's about 100 each, which is actually quite a good business. So if you have 100 investors as a sole practitioner financial planner, that's a good living. But what about the other... 6 million Australian households or 6.5 million Australian households who don't fit that mould. Where are they getting their advice from? And in many cases, it's from Uncle Harry at the barbecue, who knows probably less than you do, but because he's 60, sounds like he knows what he's talking about or should know what he's talking about, or going to comparison sites like Finder or iSelect, who obviously have a, a vested interest in delivering the click to the advertiser who's going to pay the most money regardless of their intentions. That's what the algorithm will do. So when we look at the needs of younger people, 20s through to 40s, 
Well, they're going through those big three life changes that create huge demands for financial needs. So they're coupling, nesting, and parenting. So they're dealing with starting to pool their spending. So if managing money on your own is hard, managing as a couple is 10 times as hard. And then what are you going to do? Are well, you going to buy a house? Are you going to have kids? So over that yeah, five-year period from 28 to 33, there's a huge amount of lifestyle changes that happen, and we're pretty ill-equipped as a society to deal with those. So delivering advice at the right time is critical to that. So they're the people that you're um, seeking to, to help? That's right. So the, the Life Sherpa member is typically late 20s to early 40s. They work for a living. They generally make a reasonable living. So they earn at or above the median income and they work for somebody else. And they're setting out to do the best they can for themselves and their families. And that involves a whole bunch of financial decisions. And that's why it's called Life Sherpa, that this is not purely about money. It's about money in our life. And the concept of a Sherpa is now your your loyal buddy who helps you along the way to achieving your goal and shares their knowledge of the mountains and the weather so that you can achieve your summit. Okay, so how can people get in touch with Life Sherpa? Well, Life Sherpa is at lifesherpa.com.au. We're at at my life Sherpa on Instagram and at, on Facebook, and you can get started for free. Fantastic. Okay, Vince, well, thank you very much for coming along today and uh, your investment advice. Most appreciated. Well, thanks for having me, Phil. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.